Should you pay tax? For most of us, the answer is, well, yes, we have to. But for some people, the answer is, only if you have to. And this was a question in Jesus' time too. Should you pay tax to the Romans? It's a trap, a question that Jesus is supposed to stumble over. But he doesn't. Instead, he sets his own trap. Hi, I'm Stuart and I'm the minister here at St Ninian's in Stonehouse. It's brilliant to welcome you from wherever you find yourself today. You can always find out more about who we are and what we do at st-ninians-stonehouse.org.uk. Today's service is led by Yvonne, so let's listen first for the word of God. Matthew 22 verses 15 to 22 Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this? And whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Our Gospel reading from Matthew takes us back to the temple court in Jerusalem only a few days before Jesus will be betrayed. Jesus is still teaching about what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, a kingdom that has already broken it into our world and is growing towards its fullness. Because the kingdom of God is already present, our citizenship in that kingdom rubs up against a very real day-to-day living in a broken world. Sometimes the conflict between worldly reality and kingdom living becomes confusing and uncomfortable. Sometimes we don't know how to reconcile our allegiance to God with our worldly obligations. Jesus was faced with this same dilemma, and in today's reading, he shows us how to live in the world while living into the kingdom of God. Here's the story so far. We're in the temple on Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus has already cursed a fig tree, challenged the authority of the chief priests and elders, and told parables to anger the Pharisees. And it's not even noon yet. That's the setting of the story. The characters include Jesus, of course, but the rest of the cast has changed somewhat from earlier in the story. Now, instead of the temple rulers who challenged Jesus' authority in the last chapter, the Pharisees have sent some of their own disciples to speak with Jesus. This is the only time disciples of the Pharisees are mentioned in the entire New Testament. So that might be an important detail to hold in the back of our minds. In addition to these disciples, the Pharisees have enlisted the help of their opponents, the Herodians. The Herodians weren't particularly religious. They were political leaders who supported the Roman authority given to Herod over Israel. An alliance between the religious Pharisees and the political Herodians was unusual. They only worked together because of the mutual fear of Jesus and his growing influence with the people. So we have Jesus, the Pharisees' disciples 
the Herodians who have joined them in an awkward alliance, and the silent onlookers who have gathered around Jesus to hear him teach. We have the setting and the characters. Now, the plot. As the Pharisees go off to conspire with the Herodians, they look for a way to force Jesus to reveal himself as a rebel against Rome or a blasphemer against God, preferably both. They decide to start with the flattery, hoping to get Jesus to let down his guard so that he will walk right into the trap. They describe his impartiality to all and his disregard for rank, encouraging him to denounce Roman authority. At the same time, they refer to his sincerity and truthfulness, encouraging him to claim a level of righteousness that belongs only to God. The problem these religious and political leaders set before Jesus is one we face every day. To whom do we give our primary allegiance? When the law of the land seems to go against the law of God, what choice will we make? This is the problem in the story's plot that must be resolved. They think we have set up the perfect either-or riddle, because whichever way Jesus answers, he's going to offend one group or the other. He will either break Roman law or temple law. He can't have it both ways. They wait for Jesus to answer, because they're sure that they've got him now. You may have noticed that we live in an increasingly polarised society. Everything is either or, and if you don't land on the same side of an issue as your neighbour, that makes you an immediate enemy. The Pharisees and the Herodians lived in a similarly polarised world. You either paid allegiance to Caesar or to God. But Jesus says that looking at this question from a polarised perspective gets it all wrong. If we insist on either or, we miss the point. You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He asks. And we suddenly remember another conversation at the very beginning of his ministry when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 to Satan in the wilderness. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. In that conversation, Satan has invited Jesus to throw himself down from a pinnacle of the temple to prove that he is the son of God, but Jesus knows better. And now, facing the Pharisees and Herodians, as they gang up on him, Jesus sees through their hypocrisy, just as he sees through ours whenever we pretend to submit to God, but hold in our hearts the desire to have our own way. We don't like to think of ourselves as hypocrites. We don't like to fall into that category Craig Grishel describes in his book, The Christian Atheist. People who claim to believe in God, but who live as if God doesn't exist. And those disciples of the Pharisees who stood before Jesus didn't like it either. The Herodians might not have cared one way or the other. But those Pharisees considered themselves among the most faithful of all God's people and they didn't like being called hypocrites. They didn't like being called hypocrites at all. I want to pause here at this point of tension in the story and I want you to imagine that you are one of those silent onlookers in this drama. Maybe you have been following Jesus as a faithful disciple throughout his ministry. You're one of the insiders one of the chosen twelve. You think you know this guy, this Jesus, 
but you're wondering how he's going to wriggle his way out of this one. Now you've been close enough to hear him say, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life. So you may be wondering, if Jesus is about to be arrested, will that leave you without a leader? Or maybe you are one of the people who come or came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And when you heard that this Jesus was preaching in the temple courts, you went looking for him to hear for yourself what this new rabbi was teaching. You are simply here out of curiosity. Maybe you were laughing along with the crowd when the pompous religious leaders heard their own words used against them. You are here not as a believer necessarily, but as a sceptic. And if this Jesus can embarrass those self-righteous religious leaders, well, you want to be around to see the show. Or maybe your heart was strangely warmed as you listened to this man teach with an authority that could only come from God. Maybe you have been wondering as you listened if this could be the Messiah after all. Whatever has brought you into this crowd. You wait to hear what Jesus will say. How will he solve this riddle the Pharisees and Herodians have put before him? Because you are certain that whatever he says will force you to decide where your allegiance lies. Whatever he says will tell you if you should put your trust in him or if you should simply walk away. And Jesus says, Show me the coin used for paying the tax. Notice that Jesus doesn't happen to have a denarius in his own pocket. But he's pretty sure one of his challengers will have brought such a coin into the temple. And he's right. They hand him a denarius immediately. Not even realising they have exposed their own blasphemy by bringing a Roman coin, bearing a Roman inscription that calls Caesar divine into the temple where God alone is to be worshipped as holy. But Jesus doesn't call attention to this. He turns the coin over in his hand and asks a question that any child could answer. Whose image is this and whose inscription is on this coin? And with this seemingly simple question, Jesus raises the stakes even higher. You see, this wasn't just any coin, but a coin required for paying a tax to the Romans. And it wasn't just any tax. First century Jews had to pay their share of taxes just as we do. But the tax that required payment with a denarius was the imperial tribute or census tax that had been instituted about the time of Jesus' birth. It was a tax Jews paid to support the Roman occupation of Israel. The Jews had to pay one denarius a year to finance their own oppression. I have to imagine it was the Herodians, those Jews who supported the Roman occupation, who answered first. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus doesn't blink. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is his. You can almost hear the wind going out their sails, can't you? The Pharisees and Herodians are amazed. There's nothing more they can say, so they turn and walk away. Those who are gathered around Jesus are left to ponder what this all means. 
At first, it seems as if he spoiled his opponents once again with a both-and answer to their either-or question. But an unspoken question hangs in the air. If the image stamped on a coin determines whose it is, what has God's image stamped on it? The Herodians and the Pharisees may have already left, but a deeper truth begins to dawn on the rest of us. As we remember the story of creation from Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We belong to God, for we were made in God's image. God created us to bear his own divine likeness. Our purpose, our calling, is to bear that image into the world as a constant reminder that God's kingdom has a higher claim in each of us than this broken world of ours has. Some have used this passage to defend the separation of church and state. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Some insist that this is just another one of Christ's lessons on the proper place of money in our lives. I don't think it is. I don't think this lesson is even really about money at all. It's about recognising the image of God. Recognising the image of God when we see it in one another and calling attention to that image as a reminder that God is very present even when we feel the most oppressed or threatened by the world around us. When Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's, he's reminding us that all we are and all we have belongs to the one who created us, the one who loves us more than we can ever imagine. At another time in Jewish history, another oppressive regime ruled over the nation of Israel. The prophet Isaiah described the love of God to people who'd given up all hope, who were certain that God had abandoned them forever. We read in Isaiah chapter 49 verses 15 and 16. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Not only do we bear the image of God, we have been inscribed on the palms of God's hands. Not only are we inscribed on the Creator's hand, but also in the hands of Christ, those hands that bear the marks of death on a cross for our sakes. Sometimes the image we bear may be difficult to recognise. It may be distorted by the world's inscriptions in our lives. What we wear or drive or eat, how we live and whose opinions we value. But under all those inscriptions is a deeper mark. It's the mark of the cross, drawn in us at our baptism. It's the mark that says, you belong to the God who formed you, who loves you, who will not let you go. Are we centred in Christ? Do we bear the image of Christ to the world around us? If we do, 
then how does that image determine how willing others may be to receive the good news that Jesus died for their sins and wants to give them eternal life? This should be our primary identity. After all, we are God's precious children. That identity is a filter through which we make all our decisions. It's a standard against which we must measure all our choices. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But give to God the things that are God's. Now you might think that I'm asking us to reflect God's image by increasing our pledge or our commitment to service in the church. And as much as I would love to see our deepening faith expressed in these ways, I'm not asking any of those things. I'm simply asking us to remember that we are the image of God, shining out into the world. And the people we encounter every day, whether we like them or not, whether we approve of their actions or political opinions or theological beliefs, they also bear the image of God to us. So, let's look for it. Let's recognise it. Know that someone is looking to us, often when we least expect it, to find that image and to see it as a reminder that God has each of us marked on the palms of his hands. Our identity as God's precious children, bearing God's own image, shapes our behaviour and our thinking. It urges us to become the people Christ calls us to be, centred on Christ, offering Christ, and doing all things through Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure with salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well, supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage grace which like the Lord the giver never fails from age to Habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear for a glory and a covering, showing 
thus deriving from their banner Light by night and shade by day Safe they feed upon the manna Which he gives them when they pray Whose face do we see, God? When we look at a coin, do we see the face of a monarch, a president, an emperor? Or do we see the potential that coin symbolises? A potential that can be unleashed for good or for ill, for selfless service or for selfish gain, for creativity as part of your kingdom, or lording it over others. We pray today for those in the workplace who get carried away by unscrupulous practices. For the obvious, theft and deceit of customers and businesses, and others that are pervasive yet hidden, using international borders to get around paying taxes. And yet, you see all of this, Lord. You know what is owned by us and our practices and failures, and what we should aspire to in fairness and justice for all. We pray today for countries that suffer as a result of bad management, for people trying to do what is right in societies where corruption is an epidemic and for those seeking to bring changes to systems that are inherently imbalanced. We pray today for our communities that all people might work together, recognising each other's differences but striving to benefit each other, refusing to take advantage of others and instead building a community that mirrors the values of your kingdom. We pray for all those who are suffering, whether because of personal losses, of health, of grief or of conflict, and pray that they would reflect on what really lasts, the love that's shared and known, the relationships that need to be nurtured and grown, that through these we might all grow stronger. So hear us now, as we pray the words your Son Jesus Christ taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. We go from this time together knowing we are loved by God, called by God and sent by God, that we go with God's blessing. God known to us as Father, Son and Holy Spirit with us this day and always. Yeah.